we've been looking this entire year at, at what that mission is. Beginning all the way back with Israel, looking at it in the life of Jesus, with John the Baptist coming right before him. And, and for several weeks now, we've been focusing on this word gospel, this third component of this year-long series. And, and one of the things I wanted to do more than anything else is for all of us, when we left after some of these lessons, to have a better understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. You see, I think a lot of us, if we were just asked by someone on the street, you're a Christian, right? You, you believe in Jesus. What is this word gospel? What does it mean? And, and I want us to be able to answer that question. Now, one of the problems we have is that we can get it confused with some of the various aspects of the gospel. We'll be reminded of that here in just a moment. But the word gospel itself has become a religious word. It wasn't in the first century when the writers in the New Testament used it. But the word gospel simply means good news. But it's good news that changes the world and people's lives in particular. The best way I know to describe it, like watching news, maybe at 5.30, and, and when the news comes on, they'll say, breaking story. And they'll tell you about something that just happened that's going to have a profound effect upon perhaps even my life and your life. Now, I've never tuned into the national news and heard them say, breaking story. There was a car broken into last night in Madison, Tennessee. They've never said that. Now, that might affect me living in Madison, but it's not going to affect the world. Breaking news. You know, someone ran a red light in Hendersonville, Tennessee yesterday. And, of course, some of y'all are feeling real guilty right now, right? Y'all ever notice how many people run red lights now? It's unbelievable. I mean, absolutely unbelievable and 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 so but that's that's not national news that's not world changing now it could be individually changing if you pull out somebody that's running a red light I get that but good news is that which changes our lives and the rest of the world now like I mentioned a moment ago there are these aspects of the good news this is where I think we get confused sometimes and if we don't get these aspects right we end up getting the cart in front of the horse. The first is simply the good news itself. And that's what we're talking about right now. What is the good news that needs to be told the world? And then we have to decide whether we're going to respond in a positive or negative way to that good news. It's the response to the good news. In the New Testament called either the obedience or disobedience to the gospel. Now growing up, I thought that was the gospel. You know, to me, the gospel was the response. Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And while I believe in every one of those aspects, that's not the good news. That's a response to the good news. And then the third aspect is the benefits or the blessings of the gospel. And boy, that's important to get our heads around and to grasp. Now, let's go back to the good news itself. And I use this image of a bullseye. And last week, I talked about the fact that if you could define the gospel with one word, that word would be Jesus. Jesus is the good news that has changed the world. And last week, I wanted you to walk out here with at least one understanding about Jesus, which is He is God incarnate. 
I still remember I was about 19 years old. Either I think I was a freshman at Freed Harmon, just finished up my freshman year. And I'm still processing this concept of, of the Godhead. Still trying to figure out Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I remember as clear as yesterday of standing in the church parking lot and all at once somehow coming to a realization that Jesus is not just the Son of God. I'd always believed that. But He is God Himself in the flesh. Or to use the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 49, here is your God. That was the good news when Jesus came into the world. But the good news goes further than that. Like a pebble in a pond, the ripples just kind of keep going out. And the second aspect that you'll read about in the New Testament is that Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection flows out of this incarnation of God himself. And what's fascinating is how that just kind of pops up all over the place throughout the books of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 2 2. Here's Paul saying, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except, and you know, if we put dot, dot, dot up there in a blank, I think a lot of us would plug in things that probably are not the main thing that we need to be focused on. I mean, for I determined to know nothing while I was with you except the importance of baptism. Baptism is important. We're going to be talking about that in a future lesson. But that's not the prime importance. I determined to know nothing while I was with you except the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is huge. We just got through observing it, and it's so important. But it points to something that's more important. And Paul says what is more important is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You turn over a few chapters further in that particular letter, and you have Paul saying, here's that which is of first importance regarding the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There is something in those three events that is absolutely life-changing if we can get a grasp of it. And so I want to just pause and ask, why the cross? Why the cross? Why is Jesus' suffering, death, burial, and resurrection so important? It was 1982. I was taking a class studying Jesus. And the professor of the class, we were looking at this very question, why the cross? Why was that necessary? And we had a paper we had to write. Now, what I loved about this professor, his name is Dr. Carol Osborne. He was the Greek teacher there, Harding School of Theology. And Dr. Osborne, one of the things he did in our classes is he constantly asked the question, why? We'd be in class, we would read something, he'd say, okay, why did Paul write that? Why did the Hebrew writer write that? Why did John write that? And we would respond, as we responded, he would then say, okay, now why did you say that? And you're like, oh, great, you're just going to keep asking why, aren't you? Yes. That was one of the things I loved about Dr. Osborne is that he was one of these teachers who said, listen, keep asking that question why. Go deeper and deeper and deeper because there's always another reason underneath the surface. With a possible exception of why the cross. Why is the cross good news? And, and the best way I know to describe it is this. 
is that on the cross, Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. But here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to read this a little bit different. I want you to read it this way. Jesus came to do for me what I could not do for myself. You see, I think sometimes we use these words, our, instead of using that word, me, my. And the end result, we don't internalize it. We don't, we don't really think about it on a personal note. And by the way, this is what the word grace is all about. Grace is about God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8, one of the first verses a lot of us memorized as kids growing up. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. But I love Eugene Peterson, who, who, who gave us the paraphrase known as the message. Look at Peterson's paraphrase. I absolutely love this. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. That's what grace is. I still remember a sermon. I was a teenager in high school. Well-known preacher, still alive. Call his name. Some of you would know him. But he was visiting and he was talking about grace. And he says, here's the best way I know to explain grace. And Rodney, you're going to love this one. He said, that Greek word chorus is very similar to a word Kerr. Kerr is the word for hand. K-E-I-R is how we would spell it. Chorus, K-A-R-I-S. And he says, so picture in your mind a ladder going from earth to heaven. And let me explain grace. Grace is this. Grace is when you get on that ladder and you as a human being climb up that ladder toward God as far as you possibly can. And when you get as far as you can, then God or Jesus reaches down his curtain extends grace and pulls you up the rest of the way. Only problem with that analogy is this. You go back a few verses in the text, and the text says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. And brothers and sisters, dead people don't climb ladders. You see, it's not that I do as much as I can, and then Jesus fills up the rest. It's that Jesus does it all. He, he, he starts it, he finishes it. I mean, it, it, it's an image that we have got to realize. Grace is about the incredible work of God doing for us what we can't do ourselves. And he is the author, the Hebrew writer said, and he is the finisher as well. And that's a concept we've got, to, we've got to get in our head. Why? Because we're spiritually dead. And you look around the world, and John Micah mentioned this a few moments ago. And you see the craziness of the world. I mean, you see what's going on in Ukraine. You see what happened five years ago down in Las Vegas where at a concert a guy just decides, I'm going to shoot 61 random people, including himself. You see a kid, 18 years old, drive two and a half hours to a grocery store in Buffalo. Why? Because he just fed his head full of garbage day after day after day. And he takes a gun and he goes out and starts shooting people in the parking lot. He walks into the store and there's a security guard, retired police officer, who 
shoots at him. He's wearing body armor. He just bounces off. He kills the security guard. And then randomly walks through the store shooting six other people. It's the world we live in. They interviewed one lady outside the store and she said, I came to buy groceries. And you look at that and you go, what in the world is good news for this world? And the answer is God's incredible grace. That's what the world, that's what that young man, that's what everybody desperately needs to hear. Here's how Paul put it. You see, at just the right time, when we, when I was still powerless, Christ died for me. He died for you. He goes on, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Let me translate that in less Chapman language. Very rarely will anybody give their life for the preacher. Okay? You know, I tell people all the time, Somebody comes in and starts shooting. First thing you need to do is run to protect me. And everybody's like, no, nope, you're on your own. You know, you're on your own. He goes on and he says, but for a good person, there are people who will die. And we all know that. But God demonstrates his own love for us while we, while I, was still a sinner. Christ died for me. He goes on and he says, we've been justified. We've been reconciled. We've been saved. You get all these words that, going way back when I, was, when I was taking that class under Dr. Osborne, we were looking at the meaning of this word justification. What does it mean to be found righteous, just in the eyes of God? Reconciliation, what does it mean that you have two people who were friends who have become enemies and now they're reconciled back together again? Redemption, what does it mean that you somehow have been enslaved but someone comes and bails you out of that slavery by redeeming you? at one or we call it atonement. I mean, this whole image of a sacrifice being made and somehow this sacrifice brings these two parties back together as one again. Victory. How, how, what does it mean for us to finally overcome Satan and his powers in the world? And of course, salvation. I mean, word after word after word, each an effort to try to say, can I just give you a glimpse of why Jesus had to die? Theologian by the name of Leslie Newbigin. He's one of my favorite theologians. Do you have any idea why? He does misspell his first name, but that's okay. I'll let that pass. Uh, I've never seen anybody spell it that way. Notice what he says about the atonement, about this why Jesus died. We're speaking about a happening, an event that can never be fully grasped by our intellectual power and translate. He said you can't translate that into a theory or a doctrine. I mean, we, we go to theology school, and what do we do? We study the atonement, but at the end of the day, this is very true. We're in the presence of a reality full of mystery, which challenges us, but exceeds our grasp. At the end of the day, after I close my Bible, I've got to admit, God, I don't fully understand why you did it. I'm just glad you did. And I have to leave it at that. Jesus had to die. You know, we took communion a few moments ago, and Jesus, as he's in the garden after instituting this marvelous supper, 
He prayed, and he, and he prays this incredibly intense prayer. Abba, Father, as, as personal, as intense as you can get. Notice he cried out, everything's possible for you. Take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. And God's will was for him to drink it. He had to die. So why did Jesus have to die? Again, not the full answer, but at least one of the glimpses. He had to die to deal with sin problem once and for all. Something had to be done about this incredible messed up world and my contribution to it that's going on. 1 Corinthians, again, verse 15, he died. Why? Paul says he died for our sins. Colossians 2.14, he forgave us all of our sins. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. You get all of these glimpses, one right after the other, saying it had to be done for us to be forgiven. And thus, when we gather around the table, like we did this morning, we remember. The bread, the body, the fruit of the vine. Again, I want to urge us, don't be so quick and flippant in taking communion. I, I know it's hard to know how long to wait between the elements. I know sometimes we want silence. Sometimes we want to sing. Sometimes we want to read scripture. I mean, there's so many things that zone in those moments. But one of the things that goes on is that we celebrate a cup that is the representation of the new covenant that was because Jesus' blood was poured out. Again, take it personal. It was poured out for me. If you just let that sink in, that someone's blood poured out for me. How well do you internalize that? What effect does it have on you? Jesus told a story that illustrates this beautifully. Jesus goes to the house of a man by the name of Simon. Simon's a Pharisee. They're having dinner. Jesus is reclining. Now, in biblical times, you didn't sit at a table. You, 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 you reclined at a little bit of low table. Table would have been about this tall. There would have been pillows around the table, and and you would have leaned on that pillow. And and because you walked with your feet in sandals, your feet oftentimes smelled really bad, and so your feet were away from the table. If that makes sense to you, to me, growing up barefooted when I was a kid. And as Jesus is sitting there eating, a woman walks in. And this woman, of course, she's known in the village very well. Simon knows who she is. And she walks up behind Jesus' feet, and she just stands there. And she starts crying. Tears pouring off of her face, landing on Jesus' feet. And then when she sees the tears on Jesus' feet, she bends over, takes her hair down, and starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And then starts kissing his feet. And then starts pouring this alabaster star, a jar of perfume on his feet. Now I'm convinced that most of us read that and it simply doesn't impact us anymore. Let me tell you something. If I was eating dinner at someone's house and a woman came in and started doing that, I know full well what June Chapman would do. 
Gene Chapman would say, if you want to kiss his feet, kiss his feet. I'm not kissing them. You know. No, she wouldn't say that. But what you see, though, is this reaction. And, of course, Simon's response is, this guy cannot be a prophet. If he was a prophet, he'd know what kind. This woman's a sinner. And Jesus responded, do you see this woman? And the answer is no. He didn't see a woman. He saw a sinner. I mean, who you see makes all the difference in how you respond. And then he goes on to say, you know, I came in, you didn't wash my feet. I came in and you didn't give me a kiss. You didn't anoint my head. And this woman's done all of it. And then here's what Jesus says, and this is what's so powerful. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Brothers and sisters, can I be honest and tell you this verse haunts me? You know, if you walked up to me right now and you said, Hey, Les, uh, I want to take you out to lunch and I want to pay for it. I'd be appreciative. And I'd say thank you. And that'd be great. But that'd be very different, my response would, than if I was in debt a million dollars and didn't know what I was going to do. And you walked up to me and said, Hey, Les, I want to help you out. I want to pay your debt off. Now, you want to make a difference? I mean, every year I see commencement addresses of where someone stands up and says, I've got news for the graduating class of this year. Your college bill has been paid for. Someone's made an anonymous donation, and no one owes anything anymore. And the college students just go nuts. And I would too. I mean, to have been forgiven much causes us to love much. And if you want to know how much you feel forgiven, simply ask how much love is welling up in you about the good news of Jesus' forgiveness. But Jesus' death on the cross for our sins was not the only victory. Again, one of the things that you've got to realize as you're reading through uh, these passion narratives is something is constantly happening in the mind of God and in in the heavenly realms. Among the things that are going on is is Satan's being defeated. I mean, to me, this is one of the most incredible texts. And having disarmed the powers and the authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through the cross. I I don't know if you like hero movies. You know, they're just coming out constantly now. Every every few months, you've got another superhero movie. Yeah, how many Spider-Man movies can there be, right? And yet they just keep coming. You know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. And, and what happens oftentimes in these superhero movies is you'll have an episode of where the superhero is feared for some reason. Maybe he's Superman or, you know, Batman or whatever. And so all the forces of good, quote, unquote, decide they've got to take him out. And so you have these tanks and you have jet airplanes coming in. And all at once you see all these explosions and there's fire going everywhere. And then the cloud begins to clear and there's the superhero still standing there. Can I tell you who the first superhero was? His name was Jesus. And Satan threw everything he had at him. He got him killed. Nailed him to a cross. Put him in a grave. And all the forces of evil were rejoicing because we got him now. 
Only three days later to have him come out of that grave and to stand there and Satan going, we're in trouble. He triumphed over the forces of evil. Or to use the words of John, he destroyed the devil's work. And for that I'll be forever grateful. But not only did he disarm Satan, but he also reversed the curse. He began an amazing process of healing in the world. That's one of the things we don't realize when we come up out of the waters of baptism is that Jesus begins this process of knitting us back together into the image of God. He's still working on me. Some weeks I go backwards. Other weeks I'll go forward. I love the way Isaiah put it in Isaiah 53, this incredible song about the, the, the coming crucifixion of the Messiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him, and by his wounds I am healed. And when I think about words like peace, shalom, this wholeness that God's wanting to restore me to, wanting to restore you to, I mean, the peace that Jesus, right before he went back to heaven, said to the apostles, peace I leave with you. But it's my peace. It's not the kind the world has to offer. They don't even know what peace is. And by my wounds, I'll heal you. And I need a lot of healing. You need a lot of healing. Whether it's sin, whether it's health, whether it's financial, relational. I mean, you fill in the blanks. You see, I'm convinced if I were to ask you right now, if there was one thing God could help you heal in your life, what would it be? Almost all of us would have something immediately going into that blank. And here's what I want you to know. He's, healed. He's here to do that. Now you say, last my problem is I'm getting old. By the way, June and I celebrated 43 years of marriage this last week. Can you believe she's put up with me 43 years? Unbelievable. You know, I, I, I can't imagine that. May, thank you very much. May said, that's a lot. Amen. It is. But one thing that both of us realize is we're getting older. And of course, as we're getting older, this one right here becomes the most powerful image of all. Because on that third day, Jesus came out of the grave and he says, My promise to you is, you too will follow me out of that grave. Death will not win. You turn over to Hebrews and one of the things the Hebrew writer said is that Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters. He had to share in their blood. Why? In order, verse 15, to free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I mean, the greatest fear that mankind has is that one day I'm going to die and that's going to be the end of me. And Jesus says, no, it's not. It's not the end of you at all. The fact that there's an empty tomb over in Israel today says that one day your tomb will also be empty. And that's the hope that we have. I love the way Revelation ends. This is Revelation chapter 21. I apologize, I've got 20 up there, but it's chapter 21. Where he describes how that God's going to come again like he did in Eden and dwell with his people. And he'll be with us and he'll be our God and we'll be his people. And then verse 4, and he's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Buffalo, New York had a lot of tears yesterday. Ukraine's got tears every day. Perhaps this last week you had tears. I know some of you did. 
I mean, my, my sister-in-law lost her mother this last week. Tears. And one day, Jesus is going to wipe them all away. And there's going to be no more death. I love the fact that that's the first word in the list. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order, the old order, the fact that we get old, that old order is going to be done away with. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. And if you need to respond to that good news, the simple way of doing it is that response to the gospel, which is to believe it. Our job is simply to believe that he's going to do in us what he says he's going to do. And then based on that faith, to be buried with Jesus in baptism. And if we can assist you in doing that, why don't you come right now as a go.